welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. We're a series one of the podcast focused on making the decision to become a solo mum. Series two is covering the process itself. Each week, I'll chat to a different guest to cover each step of the process of becoming a solo mum. In today's episode, I speak to Anna Mess, the CEO of the European Sperm Bank. It's a really great episode for both those looking at using a sperm donor, but also solo mums interested in looking for donor siblings and whether and when to look for them, regardless of the sperm bank you use. It was a really insightful conversation and interesting for me to hear about how Anna Met, as a CEO, sees the sperm bank's responsibility between the donor, the recipients, and the donor-conceived children of the future. Some really interesting topics covered. Anna Met, welcome to the Stalk and I podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time um, to come and talk to us today. Um, so before we get into the subject, which is um, sperm donation, um, do you want to just give yourself a little bit of an introduction around who you are and a bit about the European Sperm Bank? Yes, very much so. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm Annemette Ander Lauritsen and I'm the CEO of the European Sperm Bank which I've been in almost eight years now. And that has been a tremendous travel with European Sperm Bank coming from a, uh, we were founded back in 2004. uh, And uh, here in 2021, we are an international sperm bank with uh, laboratories in uh, more places in Denmark, in Germany and in UK. So we are trying to be an international bank helping people out uh, with donors which seems to be more and more important uh, these days. Absolutely, that's definitely what I'm finding um, because, I mean, obviously my listeners are people considering solo motherhood or solo mums, and I think that demographic definitely seems to be just getting more and more. I think more women in their 30s and 40s are finding themselves single, not wanting to um, miss out on motherhood and therefore starting to look um, at using a sperm donation. Have you seen that um, trend that the single motherhood demographic is, is increasing? Definitely. I think in Denmark, we saw it first. Also, it's very liberal here in Denmark. So many people also single could be treated for a long time. But we see more and more single in Germany, in UK, uh, in uh, actually also in the southern uh, part of Europe. Uh, to looking for that opportunity, um, either because they're they're husband has not any good sperm they live in a, a same-sex relationship or they're simple like you're saying a single mom who, who really wants to be mom and and who can use this opportunity as uh, as the way to realizing the dream without limiting other aspects of life so what I would love to do is help people who are at the beginning of this journey understand a little bit more about this process so First of all, if we start with the sperm donors themselves, who are they? Sort of, where do you recruit them from? What sort of people are they that you have who donate? Well, they are all kind of people. I think uh, we are not. We are recruiting very broadly. Uh, they have to be above eighteen and below forty-five years. That's sort of the mathematical requirement, and then they have to be healthy. 
That means that they have to be just uh, healthy themselves, a good lifestyle. Uh, they have to, of course, have very good sperm quality because otherwise they cannot survive uh, the donor process. And then they have to be genetic screened in the sense that we do not want any donor with a, with a risk of passing on a genetic disease to an offspring. So that means we're both checking themselves. We are, we are listening into their family. Is there any risk that they can have a, a genetic disease themselves based on the history of their family? And then we're actually also screening them for what you call recessive diseases. That, that means that we have, we're a carrier of a genetic mutation, but it's not harm, harming ourselves. So that's a very, very broad um, screening we do to make sure, you can say in a way that if you are in a position where you want to use a sperm donor, what we can do for that is making sure, uh, at least as much as we can, to provide you with a, uh, a donor who is, is, uh, is healthy and who has the genetics and the personality to be a donor. Um, that also means that you, you will find any type of donor, right? any type of man, that, that is, there's no limitations. Uh, so uh, we really try to find a broad spectrum. So do you have quite a lot of people who start the process who then don't become donors because they're screened out for different reasons? Definitely. I think if 100 people apply to our program, 5 to 10 of them passes through the needle eye. So it's a very strict part, uh, mostly because men do not have perfect sperm quality, but also due to their family history uh, or their uh, other whereabouts that they're not suitable of being donors. Wow, so quite reassuring for someone who's then a recipient of that sperm that that's quite a rigorous process. Absolutely. And we do quite a lot also to tell the donors you're in it for life because this is one of the huge things you cannot change when you are a donor uh, that will not go away. So we really want to emphasize for the donors that they do the, the very great thing there that people will, will love and really appreciate what they're doing, but they also have to be able to live with these circumstances for the rest of their lives. So what do they understand might happen then? Do they know that they may get contacted when that child is of a certain age? Yeah, that's part of also our, our uh, interview program that we tell them. Uh, if they're, like in Denmark, you can choose between being ID disclosed donor or non-ID disclosed donor. So we start talking with them what kind of donor they want to be, which is rather reassuring because if you choose them to be an open donor, then that was a positive choice. Uh, and then with that, we tell them that will mean that the children, at, as you say, a certain age will get their ID disclosed. Uh, we also tell them, though, that it does not mean that they should have a relationship with these children. Uh, these children are born into their own families uh, with uh, mothers and, and uh, uh, parents who will take care of them. So the, do the donor should not expect uh, a relationship with, uh, with neither the mother nor the children. And do you know roughly what percentage of people choose to be release ID and what is anonymous? More and more open uh, go for the uh, released ID, uh, definitely. Also because many of the donors say to us, well, I'm fine. If I can be a donor, I can also live with the fact that the children will know who I am. Uh, but that is, of course, also based on this sort of... Um, not written down agreement that they will know who they are they might also contact them but they will not have a relation 
Okay, understood. And that's really positive. I think that more, more people are choosing to be really... Yeah. And so what is the process to donate? What do they have to go through to donate? Is it like one trip or is it numerous trips to the clinic? Like how does it all work? Well, it starts with them coming in uh, the door. Uh, this actually starts with them applying on the, on the web to say, I would like to be a donor. Then there's certain screening and then they uh, are invited in for their first uh, sample. And then whether if this sample is good, they go on to the next sample to sort of double check that it was not just a one location uh, that was good. And our uh, laboratory people are, are meeting and greeting the donors and they're asking them already now a number of questions. Because when you are donating, we have to make sure that you uh, you did, were not ill the day in a certain period before, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then after that, they're invited into the interview process. And the interview process, including all the screening, the medical uh, examination, et cetera, is about the two to three months. So, and before that, you're actually not allowed to donate uh, anything that we can, we can pass on to anyone. So it is a rather long process, so to say. You can, of course, sometimes do it a bit faster. Sometimes the donor needs a bit longer time. But then from there on, they're accepted in the program. And that also means that they will typically stay for a year or two donating because uh, you say when you do all this effort to get into the program, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of nice for both parties that, that they stay for a while. Uh, and it also means a lot for people if they should have the same donor, uh, a couple of treatments before they're pregnant, and then for a couple of siblings, you will need the donor to donate a reasonable amount of time. And do they get paid for that or is it, um, what's the situation about them? Yeah, they get compensated, so to say. So they, for their time and their effort and so, so they're, they're compensated uh, to, to make sure that, that that is not the barrier for them to donate. Uh, I think it's a, it's a huge gift that they're able to give. So also giving it without getting any compensation for your time will probably be a little uh, overwhelming. So, so we are allowed to compensate them. Uh, and I think that the UK rules, Danish, German, they're about the same, uh, that, that you, you're allowed to compensate them a bit for what they're doing. And so were you saying that that's where the sites are? So you've got people from those three countries donating um, yeah. predominantly. Yeah. yeah, they have to live pretty close because we have to make sure that who they are. So when, it's when they come in, they identify themselves with their fingerprint to make sure that that is the person getting in the door and just because that's an easy way of identifying the person. But uh, that, that and that goes on in, in these uh, four cities. Yeah. And then um, what information do they then give about themselves that someone would be able to see um, when they were choosing? We, we have been thinking a lot about what would be good for the child to know and what would be nice for the, for the mother or the couples to know for choosing. And a little bit thinking, all right, if you went into, if you put yourself into a room not knowing the person, what kind of question would you then start asking? Uh, so starting out like, oh, how are you? What have you been doing? Uh, have you gone to school? What kind of food do you like? What kind of music do you like? Um, what about your parents? What are they? What have they done in their life? Uh, do you have any siblings? Um, all these stuff, where do you want to travel, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we do an audio interview so that you can hear the donor's voice and you can hear the way the donor phrased all of these things. To, to, and you can really feel 
his personality when when you're doing that. Uh, when I started, even though I'm the CEO, I, I started out interviewing a lot of our donors to sort of make sure that what we really do is in line with the ethical standards that, that we want to apply and, and I want to uh, make sure that European Sperm Bank stands for. And you can really feel these donors are uh, putting a lot of their personality into it and, and getting the, the, um, the moms out there an opportunity to feel who they are. Uh, and then that is combined with also a, uh, a donor profile where we more sort of write down a lot of things. Um, also getting his, uh, you can say, a more personal uh, insight, what kind of person he is, you can say the classical extroward, introward. Um, it means quite a lot to know what is the chances of the genetic the child will have from this donor. Without getting too far into to that aspect, we, we are giving when we give away our genes, it's part of our personality come with the genes. So it is important to, to think about what kind of person am I as a, as a mother to receive the donor and then trying to figure out what kind of person would I have had liked to have children with if I had met him, um, not in the donor world, but, but outside. I think one of the things you said that I wanted to just pick up on, which I think is really important, is what is important for the child. Um, because interestingly, in my own circumstance, I only started thinking about that later when I had a child. And mm. um, I think there's this tendency to think what is important for me, because it's only about you at that point. And it's only afterwards where you think, actually, the most important thing really is what is important for me to tell my child. And I think that's a really good context for people to think about this in when they tell their child which donor they chose what is their rationale for choosing that donor that makes sense to a child so I think that's a really good advice to give women when they're thinking about this I think you're absolutely right and that's also why we we really we have a, a mantra or purpose saying um, thinking of the future and that is because we really feel an obligation to think here we're here today but these things we are doing will really be needed in maybe 10, 15, 20, 25 years. So how can we try to think about those needs and then roll it back and provide that as part of, of uh, the European Sperm Bank service? Because maybe you can say you can get sperm from many, many people. Uh, uh, maybe it's not the, the, that necessarily standalone part, but you need the whole kind of service around it, uh, which also very much include the children when, when they grow up. Um, we, you do hear more and more from children when they were 25 or uh, that age having anonymous donors and knowing absolutely nothing, that that can be part uh, of them that is hard to live with. And that's also why we would try, we would provide with children with the knowledge that we think uh, from interviewing a lot of people is what they will need. Uh, or at least the question that we hear children saying, oh, it would have been so nice to know uh, why I'm terrible with a football or why I'm terrible at math uh, or why I really lo love drawing because where, where, where is that from my mother is that from my aunt or is that actually from the donor and you you don't need a lot but you just need this part of the mirror that you can see and, and that's what our focus is really to try to get the donors to provide that to make sure that the children will have that in the end. I think it's human nature, isn't it? That the, you want what you can't have quite often, don't you? So what I've heard is that the, the, the more information you've 
got, the easier it is. The less information you have, so often children have more of a desire then to find more because they're not satisfied with, you know, with having such little information. So it's, again, it's really reassuring to hear that you're really thinking of the future and the well-being of the children because, yeah, it's not just something that happens now it's got a consequence right into the future hasn't it exactly yeah exactly okay. and also finding a balance reasonable balance between the need of the mothers the need of the donor and the need of the children because sometimes it's not exactly the same so we also find our responsibility to try to to balance that and then also talk about or communicate it if if sort of one of these parties do not really find that we got all the way that they wanted to sort of tell them all right but this is because the balances to the mother or to the child or to the donor that that has sort of made us turn that that way I think that's super important and something I'll definitely pick up on later on as well because I think it's really important to see it in that triangle of those three parties and, and again a good context for people to think in. So as a, a single woman who wants to progress towards solo motherhood, how does it work? So I know things have changed recently so um, you have to use a clinic I think now. The sperm has to be bought through a clinic. So how what is the process of doing that? Do I do it through my clinic? Do I come directly to the sperm bank? How does it work for someone right at the beginning of the journey? Right. I think the best way is actually to contact the sperm bank directly and then use the time needed to find the donor at the europeanspermbank.com. There's a, a different way of doing that. You can put up criteria for what you like you can do a photo match if you want to have a picture of a person you like or yourself seeing who, who's looking most like that you can call our counselors to talk about the process and and they can come up with uh, help for you uh, maybe you have found two or three donors you like and then you want to ask a couple of questions about so what is this balance to the other thing like in like in uh, you can say uh, non-donor life there, there's nothing where you can tick all boxes right that that, that will be that will be strange so so we are there for uh, for the in, in the way that you like it and i think uh, finding the donor is actually the most important part of the process because i'm always sure you can find a clinic who'll treat you somewhere so the clinic actually uh, often comes into second place uh, then uh, it's sort of in uh, in in the procedure, what to do. Then when you know which donor you, you want, then you find the clinic. Um, uh, what And that you can also ask us, so what kind of clinic do we cooperate with? Some are different from others of the clinic, and sometimes we also know a bit about that to, to share with, uh, with, the, with the couples. Uh, and then we, uh, we, we send the, the sperm to the clinic for the treatment. And normally we, we cooperate with all clinics in UK. So they, we know, you know, these will like to receive it on a Wednesday and they would like it this way and they should got the, the, the documents of the donor in this kind of way. So it's a lot of proceeding going back and forth with us in the clinic, but that's very uh, well recognized in our end. So that just goes without any complications. You've got to figure out how many, how many straws you need. Um, and you can take sometimes a little bit of reflection of uh, consideration uh, are you just going for 
one treatment uh, and then you ship one straw or do we actually want to make absolutely sure that you have enough straw for a couple of treatments and then for seedlings and then you can store it with the European sperm bank because then we will buy it back uh, if you do not need uh, need all the straws. So uh, so that's also why it's a good to, to talk with uh, with us and, and find out the, the process you would like uh, for the whole sort of uh, your, your wish on doing number of children uh, consideration do you want to have insemination or you're going more for IVF treatment uh, many people also have some thinking around that already and then we can guide them to to how many straws do they need and what kind of quality sperm do they need uh, in, in in those circumstances so do you need you need one straw for IVF and then one straw for each IUI that you would have? Um, yeah. But sometimes it makes sense to send more than one in case you need more than one. Exactly. And sometimes you have, uh, you know, even though you're going IVF, if you're only having one or two eggs uh, retrieved at your IVF and, and they might not be satisfying for you to be pregnant then you'll do another IVF and then you'll need another straw so it is a bit depending uh, on also your own age and so on how many straws you should deposit to make sure that this donor is there for you um, also if you have to sort of get another straw shipped to the clinic and if I know that I want to try for a sibling later do I get that shipped to my clinic or can I just sort of reserve it almost yeah you can just keep you can just reserve it we actually do what you can in storage so we, we make a storage for you and we have very very good storage facilities you know very secure to make sure that your your straw is there for you when you need it uh, and then you also have the benefit that if you decide not to need it we can buy it back because we have so much control when we have it here that we are certain that we can we can uh, we have been under our uh, surveillance all the time uh, and we would like to buy it back from you if you don't need it and um, how long does it take so if I decide that uh, yeah this is the sperm donor today how long would I need to leave to then get it to the clinic well, it depends a little bit on the clinic. So normally we say seven to 10 days before uh, because there are some processes between us and the clinic in UK with, with um, you can say we, uh, we, have, we are always assuring with the clinic that they can treat with the donor, which they always can, but it is a formal process that they have to say yes uh, every time. So it does take a couple of days. So seven to 10 days is, is a good time. And the, what's the difference between the quality of the sperm so like what do I need to look for when you go on there there's different qualities um, yeah. are they all okay or does it depend what treatment you're having or they're all okay but we have decided to work uh, in two qualities because but the, in a way you can say the better quality the better uh, because a donor who can do the, the top quality just has better quality as such but we have two qualities uh that mod 20 it, it, it's i know it's a kind of a technical a bit stupid that we use those frames but uh, that's a kind of a tradition <laughs> so the mod 20 is is very good for iui and often also what the clinics prefer for in uh, for ivf because then they're sure that there is enough sperm depending on how many eggs they're actually retrieving uh, but often mod 10 is also good enough for uh, IVF. Uh, and if there is a donor only with mod 10, you can always do two mod 10s 
for the insemination. So it's not like two mod 10 will still be the same as a, as a mod 20. Uh, so so that's, that's, how it, that's how it worked, basically. Okay. And um, what's the situation around the amount of times that that sperm can be used? Um, is it, I know there's different legislation in different mm. countries. Yeah. Is there a worldwide a cap or is it just depending on each country? It is depending on each country. I could say in UK there is uh, a cap of 10 um, and that's actually regardless of whether you are UK citizen or whether you're traveling into UK to be treated. And that's also why we have what we call a slot, a pregnancy slot um, or a quota, maybe easier to, to understand that term. So you can say when we have had 10 different couples buying a donor, that donor is sold out until we know whether there's a pregnancy from those uh, 10 um, a slot and then if not we will buy back the slot from the patient uh, and then we can um, we just refund the money uh, and then they sometimes find another donor they like to use or uh, or they uh, move on um, to different ways so um so there, there will be 10 families in the uk but then there could be other families in other countries yeah, yeah could be that uh, and we also have for those who's for whom thinking it's really important, we do have more, you can say, exclusive donors where you can say, I would like a donor who is only having um, uh, one donor and one, I'm the only family in a country and so on. But often people don't, I mean, you, you know, uh, a number of pregnancies is also a quality indicator that this donor is very good at making children. Uh, and, and if you think more about it in a way that he is sort of providing me with the child that I really want. Uh, for many people, it doesn't matter so much. Um, and we also talk to the donor about it, of course, because they also have to understand uh, that, that their sperm can be used um, more than, in more than one country. And they see in the same way, if, if my sperm can be used to make people happy, it doesn't matter so much uh, to me uh, whether it's uh, uh, in UK or in Germany or, or, or where? You know, it's really an individual decision on what is important to someone when choosing a sperm donor. And um, I know if you're in a couple, quite often they would choose maybe someone who seems physically um, characteristics and similar similar to the partner. But when you're a single woman, um, you, you need to decide what's important. Do you see things that people are looking for or how to best make a decision? Or do you see it just completely depends on the individual? I think it, it very much depends on the individual, uh, but also the individual's way of looking at, so what kind of things is important to me? And that's at least what we try to, what we talk with people about if they call us, they're saying, so if you have had any uh, boyfriends on the way or what have you considered important? Uh, was that his uh, temper? Uh, what that's his education? Was that his personality? Uh, was that his skills in a way? Was that his, are you yourself, you're a very sharp person or you're very much outgoing? So, so thinking a little bit about, so who are you yourself? Because this child would also, of course, get 
the environment you you you, you put the child into, but also uh, part of them will of course have the genes of the donor. So if you are a very outgoing person who loves to uh, go out and uh, uh, play tennis, um, maybe it's not so good an idea to find a donor who is very introvert, who is uh, very mathematical and uh, basically enjoy reading books. It it may be a good match uh, because you prefer that, but that's kind of you have to think around it, and that's also why it's. I guess it's so important to go to an individual sperm bank because you you can choose and they uh, we we only have an interest in letting you choose we we don't have any preference to any any choice of yours and and that's also why it's completely open and there's everything from uh, you know uh, uh, all kind of ethnicities all kind of hair color eye color there's no judgments from our side we only want to help you find the donor that that really matches your preferences and I don't know if you can tell me about this, but um, I get quite a lot of questions on, is it CMV? So sometimes mm. the clinics say that you have to have either CMV negative or CMV positive, but then that seems to be changing that guidance now. What, what do you understand about that situation? Yeah, well, the CMV has been a question, um, in, in a way peculiar question. In Denmark, many years we have said CMV doesn't matter. It's uh, you can be negative and using a positive donor, or you can be positive and using a negative donor. It doesn't affect the child at all. So there's absolutely no risk in that aspect. But there are still some country who, who sort of are, are, are viewing it differently. Uh, and maybe also thinking that it would be nice not to be uh, have the positive because your genes passed on uh you you can it, but it doesn't matter for your life at all uh, and it will not harm any women and it will not harm the child so it, it's more like i think some historical situations and it, it that it matters and we are now been here like i said since 2004 and and, and produced a, quite a number of children in denmark it, it doesn't matter at all I think um, what I read from a UK point of view was that the HFEA, I think, have updated their guidance now on it, saying what you've just explained, um, but maybe some of the clinics have not updated their um, guidance yet yeah. based on that. So maybe that's what yeah. it is. And it will be, a lot, it is more difficult to find a donor who is CMV negative because is it actually quite a natural um, uh, you can say having CMV is, is, and you can you can trust that no donor has CMV when they donate. What that, what CMV positive means just is that they have had the CMV at some point of their life. It might be 10, 20 years ago. So it's not something active in their sperm. It's just a condition within the donor. So it, it's it's not it doesn't create any risk at all. I think um, that's one of the problems because some people say, oh, but it really reduces the amount of options I've it got. So. There's no problems with that. Okay, perfect. And then just talking a little bit about then donor siblings. Personally for me, I've got a three-year-old um, who's donor conceived and I would love for her to meet her any donor siblings um, now while she's at an age that they can get to know each other from a young age mm. but just thinking back to that triangle we talked about it's very yeah. much like my decision her decision and she's too young to make a decision at the moment and then the, the donor or the, you know the other recipient families i suppose um 
So I'm never really sure what I'm allowed to do in terms of finding donor siblings. From the sperm bank point of view, is there anything which says that you're not entitled to try to find donor siblings or is it okay to try to find them? I think it's really good that you pose this question because I think that's a lot of people are looking into that. And I also think that we from the sperm bank side has been more restrictive earlier on that is actually necessary. Um, and that was actually to, to protect the donor from sort of what, what will happen if, if uh, uh, to them, uh, because I think it's important to accept the fact that the donor do not want to be found by any uh, mothers around. Uh, that is only allowed for the children to do uh, when they have the right age to do that. Um, so, but if that is kind of excluded, we at least internally with, with European has sent think, thought, well, it is probably the right way to accept that siblings would like to find each other, or at least some of the mothers would like to to find siblings and, and, and maybe create a relationship or a possible relationship for their children uh, together. And we have actually also seen some mother finding just the donor, I mean, other singles living with donor children, not necessarily the same donor, also creating a very good and interesting relationship. So I also think we do not know enough yet about, does it, is it, is it the donor, same donor? that are important or is it more the lifestyle uh, that is important uh, because no doubt donor children do have some you know uh, mutual circumstances in life that might be nice for the children to to sort of build on and understand uh, from each other so so from our point of view yeah we we uh, find it sensible if the mothers are not moved to to look for siblings and we will probably even try how can we support it in in the future because realizing, well, seaplanes are always from the same sperm bank. So this is something the sperm bank needs to work actually on. Uh, we also see actually that when they try to go on more uh, Facebook groups and so, sometimes it's not the right donor you find that somebody think they used. So, so part of us being responsible is that we go more into this, uh, more into this area. Uh, and uh, and we will do that, and probably also needing some good advice from people out there to how can we how can we make sure do we do it the right way. I mean that's that's brilliant to hear because certainly in my network of solo mums, there's a lots of people. It's very personal. Some people are yeah. like absolutely not. That's nothing to do with my family. Not interested. But then they must listen to their children later on if their children have a view but there's many people who think it would be good to um, introduce and I think I feel very similar to how you described so I think it's very important for my daughter to have some other donor conceived friends from solo mums so I have quite a few friends who are also solo mums and so the children can all talk about being donor conceived and they're too young at the moment but as they grow up you know and they can feel, I think, a little bit in included in something that they're all in a similar situation. And then, yeah, we have to be guided by them when they're at an age um, that they can do that. But um, at the same time, before they're old enough to make that decision, I think if 
um, if I knew that they did have um, a, a donor conceived sibling, I would definitely introduce them. They can decide later whether they want to continue that relationship mm. or whether they want to spend time. But I, I feel like it would be nice for them to grow up knowing those people. If you, if you get to see them when you're 16, you kind of miss those, those yeah. years. Yeah. It's probably just important also when you, when you look, uh, think about it to consider that there will also be people out there who do not want to create a relationship and how do we make sure that people are respecting that also um, and and how do we make sure that some of them might not even want to think too much about their donor children um, I, I, uh, I have done some couple of talks at uh, at UK fairs around and there were some donor children grown-up donor children and I was saying we are working very much in European to, to normalize uh, being donor child as much as we can uh, and then one of the child children up and said yeah she, she hoped for not to be invited anymore because that would be the, the the blueprint that it was so normal nobody wanted to invite anyone to talk about it and that is of course also we, we should be really careful not to create an environment that that are really not you can say part of the life that the children necessarily need because uh, but they're, they're because they're just children it's, it's, it's such a good point and I think it is a very sensitive topic because some people have strong feelings that they wouldn't want to find the donor or, or donor conceived um, siblings. Um, so you, yeah, we have to be so sensitive to yeah. try to respect everyone's different needs in that, don't we? Yeah. And um, I just had a question about um, COVID actually. I imagine that the sort of demand for this is increasing as more and more people are looking at going down this route. Did the supply get impacted? Did you struggle with COVID or has, mm. that, has that been okay? Well, I think we did struggle with COVID in the way that people were asked to stay at home. Uh, and it's pretty much difficult to donate when you're asked to, to stay at home. Uh, that being said, we, we still have more than 500 different donors uh, to choose from at the European Sperm Bank, so it will not affect us sort of in the short run. But there might be this preference donor you have found and then you think, oh, but he hasn't have he doesn't have anything in stock <laughs> and and that sort of in so in the short run uh yeah we have been affected uh and uh, we have also had to put up a lot of different um, internal processes and circumstances to make sure that it was safe to donate both for the donors uh, and for our people our staff working here so there's been a lot of of uh, things going on over the last year but uh, all the time when we have been allowed to stay open from the authorities we we have the processes in place that make us uh, stay open uh, and that's basically also because we what we do is we build on compliance so they have a background as a lawyer so part of uh, me is really really for for making sure that that we are compliant uh, with the regulatory requirement but that also come in beneficially when when you are working in these circumstances because you're sure it's safe and how, how do you see it going into the future? Because I see that the, the, the demand for this is just going to keep increasing. Do you feel like you will be able to meet that demand? <laughs> yes, I, I'm sure we can. Uh, that's why we opened up in UK. Uh, that's why we have our sperm bank in, in Hamburg. Uh, and that's why we have more sites in Copenhagen. It's twofolded it's because uh, people actually like sperm from their own country. Some some 
prefer that. Uh, and it gives us a big, a, a lot larger pool of men to recruit from. And, uh, and then we will, if that seems not to be enough, we will look for another country or another place to, to add another laboratory. Because what we're really good at is, is screening and knowing the donors and setting up the process. And, and that can, of course, be taken into other geographical areas. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I'm very sure that we will be able to meet demand. Uh, maybe not on the right donor on that day, but then that donor will come uh, sooner or later. Well, that's good to know. And um, is there anything else that somebody who is considering this, um, you know, using a sperm donor needs to know? Is there anything we haven't covered that would be useful for them to know? No, I think, I think of course, it's important when you look for a donor, should you go into a sperm bank or should you sort of try to go on the more non-official places to get sperm? Uh, and may, and we coming back to the children, um, we talked to some children who said that, that was actually the worst thing to do because then nobody knew anything about the donor. Uh, so at least what, what their parents could have done was finding someone where there was a track of that donor uh, and where they could get some information. Uh, and, and that was really surprising to me because I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, I more thought, oh, right, there was some kind of relation because there's, but there's absolutely nothing. Uh, and here at least we, we do have the knowledge of the donor and we know they're screened and we can find back to them and all those kind of things. So I, I think uh, if, if you are considering this, this might mean something to people that this is good for their children. Uh, and and the other thing is that we will be there for their children. We we are we are of course happy to make sure that you're conceiving today, but we are really interested in that you are also having a good mothership in the years to come, and that these children will have a good life as donor children. Uh, so so uh, because we don't think it makes sense to help people into the world if we cannot try to sort of be around that with the knowledge uh, and ethical perspectives for the rest of their lives. And what impact do you think DNA testing is having on this industry? Do you see an impact from, you know, from the increase in people having DNA tests? You know, I could get my daughter a DNA test and then see if there's any matches where it might have the intention might have for it to be anonymous, but actually yeah. I can find information um, that way. I'm sure, I mean, when we talk with the donors, at least we tell them this will not go away, right? People will register their DNA and if they don't, their relatives do in some kind, shape or form. So I just think this is something there is there that will not go away. And that's also why I think we, we have to work on this donor uh, sibling, deepling registration kind of uh, body, because then th there will be a, another place where you can. We don't have to register your DNA for everybody to find you. You, you can you can do what you want in in a in a more controlled context, mean, meant in a positive way. Uh, that that we can find what you're looking for uh, without having to to place your DNA in one of these uh, registration 
the bodies. I love that idea. I think it's so valid because I don't think many people want to go down a DNA route with young children and they don't want to, most people find the donor because we respect that that was the, you know, set out that the children could find them later. Um, so yeah, having a place where you can find the information you are looking for, where, where if it's any, you know, genetic siblings, um, I think that will be brilliant if, if, if that's a place that can yeah. be provided. And that's also part of our, our consideration. And, and we are of course saying to the donors, they shouldn't register, but it's really hard for the donor also control what their father or their brother doing. And as you're saying, uh, coming back also to this respect of people do not want to find each other or the donor. Uh, you, you might find somebody contacting them, but they did not really want to know that they had other uh, siblings with uh, outcome donor sperm. So you, you, you risk uh, a lot here without actually intentional to do that because what you really wanted was just to find somebody who also want to share their sibling status of a donor so so this is of course impacting also our decision to 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 uh, to move on this area and to provide something that are actually fulfilling people's need in a, in a legal way and in a way where you do not have to do so much hassle to to find what you're looking for really good to hear um, and so then finally what's really important to you in the European sperm bank like what are the sort of values and principles that are important to you we have a couple of a couple of values four actually quality is a very important value force because uh, yeah I guess that goes without saying uh, then entrepreneurship is important because that means that we are sure our, our employees are empowered to do what is right uh, and they can do it without asking 10 people uh, about it uh, and we can develop our company together and then uh, transparency we try to really be um, open-minded like this you are asking for siblings uh, yeah we, we we think about things we try to develop we try to listen uh, and we we'd like to share our thoughts sometimes uh, you have to also say yeah I understand that perspective, but looking at the donor, we have to think differently. So transparency also to us means open up for the for the dialogue. And then maybe most important, uh, or are we really trying to be warm and welcoming in the way we do, uh, because I think it's, yeah, it's like I said, you, you want sperm, but you, you, you need a full kind of service around you as a person. Uh, and we really try to encounter that in, in the way we do, not only with, uh, with the mothers-to-be, but as importantly with our donors because they're they they have to be um satisfied living their life this way also otherwise it, there is no sort of match and then we have this uh, like i said the person the purpose of of thinking of the future because uh that is basically uh, i think the most important part of what we do today is figuring out what that will mean and then hopefully we can be a sperm bank uh, that provides um, healthy children into an open-minded society. Uh, we love to expand the places where you can be treated uh, and help out so that regulatory constraints do not limit your ability to, to have a child, whether that is in your home country or whether that is another country. We really try to, to find ways uh, to, to help people um, fulfill their dream. I love that. So it's really nice for people to hear a little bit more 
about what your thinking is in, in the sperm bank than just providing sperm. So yeah. really, really nice to hear. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I think it'll be so useful for people, particularly who are at the beginning of their journey, just sure. considering what to do. Um, so I'll share all, all your details um, in the notes with everybody. And um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, you too. And thank you for inviting me to join. So I'm, I'm, it was a privilege to be able to talk with you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Stalk and I podcast, I'd hugely appreciate if you rate, review and subscribe. I look forward to seeing you again next week.